0: Hello. Welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself this week is your old Pablo Ocho. Hello. And also joining us this week from Sitcom Lovers Corner blog, G Baker. Hello. Now, first of all, we've got to say specifically to Ocho and also to our listeners stateside, Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. Pardon?
1: It doesn't really affect me. It's like Halloween because I haven't had it since childhood. Yeah, there was a Halloween when I was a child, but it wasn't quite the same excitement that they have over here. I don't think it's really part of me.
0: I think it's unfair, basically, because it means that you get two Christmases and we only get one. You get two turkeys and we get one.
1: Yeah, but the Christmas they have isn't as big as the British Christmas. Well, that's true. Christmas is over by lunchtime. I think maybe some shops start opening on Christmas Day. Certainly cinemas are open in the latter half of the day.
0: I did read, actually, that there are five NBA games on Christmas Day.
1: I think the tree comes down on the 26th and everybody goes back to normal.
0: But in between, you have like a solid month of holiday programs, don't you? Because Thanksgiving TV is effectively the start of the Christmas TV season.
1: Yeah, but of course I don't have broadcast TV in my house.
0: Well, first up, we have to issue an apology. Also, it appears that unwittingly I have stated a falsehood last week. On the show.
1: We just lost track of when Thanksgiving was. We did. We did. And you've probably twigged
0: by now, even if you didn't look at the description of the episode on iTunes, that City Lights, the Glaswegian comedy of the 1980s, is not really what you'd call ideal fare for Thanksgiving. Apologies if you're expecting us to talk about City Lights. We will talk about City Lights this time next week. Ocho, do you want to explain what we're actually talking about this week? Because it is slightly stretching the boundaries of sitcom, specifically British televised sitcom.
1: Last Thanksgiving, we allowed ourselves to watch a few American shows. So we do go a bit more transatlantic for our Thanksgiving specials. So this time we've allowed ourselves to watch some Laurel and Hardy films and talk about them in terms of the Howl Roach House style and the development of sitcom looking back at 1930s short films. So we're probably going to go off-road quite a few times talking about this, but there's something in these films where you can see the roots of modern sitcom, and certainly in modern sitcom you can definitely see echoes of Laurel and Hardy.
0: Now, Ocho, you and I would have grown up with Laurel and Hardy being a regular fixture on BBC 2, as they were right up until say the turn of 80s into 1990s. Gee, you hadn't really seen a great deal of Lauren Hardy at all before.
2: No, this. I'd seen next to nothing. I'd seen the odd like, clip in like a documentary or whatever, but I'd not actually seen a whole film.
0: Oh, true. you did a fine job of
1: selecting six. Lauren Hardy shorts. You know how we like to shape things? We like to give rules to ourselves. I picked six to try and give it something of the flow of a six-part sitcom series. I want to try and keep it so that we could pretend that this was a show rather than a bunch of largely unrelated short films, So, we, which is why I'm mainly focused on the ones where there's a job to be done. There's only one domestic one, because otherwise they're different wives, different social situations from film to film. If you just watch them from beginning to end, there is no real tie. There's only two films which are actually considered to be a two-parter. But beyond that... They can have different social backgrounds, different situations, differing marital statuses, different wives. There's one film where Stan and Ollie married each other's sisters, also played by Stan and Ollie. So, yes, I picked some. They're not necessarily the absolute six best shorts I could have picked, but I just wanted to give something a shape so that we could pretend we're doing our usual thing.
0: Grand. Well, we started off with Toad in the Hole, which concerns. Stan and Ollie with their nice little fish business, and Stan's good idea to
1: expand. There's something very telling in this one right at the beginning, doesn't he say something like about It's the first time they've really been successful.
0: Yes. For the first time in our lives, we're making money. Nice little fish business. Gee, obviously yourself first of all. So this would have been the first full-on Hardy film that you would have seen. What were your initial thoughts? Because I think that, like we said just now, I think this is a, a well-chosen one to begin with.
2: It was alright. Out of the ones I saw, this was probably one of the better ones. There was a bit more of a sort of plot to it, and it kind of sort of progressed a bit, which was good, but I think because there was a lot of slapstick in it, and I'm not a huge fan of slapstick, despite loving Morecambe and Wise and things like that, I think because it was basically just slapstick, I found it quite difficult to watch, and did have to pause it a bit and go make a cup of tea and come back.
0: Now, this is interesting because... I found myself actually sort of thinking the same thing, even though, like I say, I was brought up in these films. And when I was watching them now, not really having seen a Lone hardy shot for quite some time, I mean, probably at least a decade, and really seeing them regularly about sort of 20 years or so, I was sort of the same opinion where I was enjoying it because I'm looking at two experts in their craft at work. And yet, yeah, I was finding sort of the just constant relentless slapstick, I was finding it just a little bit sort of tiring. And I like the fact that in County Hospital, for example, we had a nice sort of slower beginning to the short and it wasn't sort of all go to begin with, whereas the setup in this is relatively quick and within two or three minutes they bought the boat from Billy Gilbert and off we go and they were pretty much, that's where we're going to be for the remaining sort of 17 minutes or so.
1: Mooncat, were you ever a member of the Sons of the Desert?
0: Yes, I was. I, I don't know what name you would give to a member who wasn't in a specific tent. I was simply somebody who received the correspondence, the magazine, the newsletters, and so on.
1: A delegate at large, I think. Uh, okay. A m- member okay. of the Utopia tent. Because that changed things for me. Yeah, grown up, seeing them on TV, haha, very funny. Joined the Sons of the Desert. So you, once a month, go to a bar and watch a bunch with a room full of people. And it made me understand the necessity of laugh tracks because it's a completely different experience watching a Laurel and Hardy film with an audience and I can then understand how comedy that is intended to be viewed, possibly alone, television comedy, would need those laughs. They are part of the soundtrack. They're part of the music. We had no real choice for this exercise. Watching a Laurel and Hardy film by yourself is not quite as full an experience and it would be fascinating for somebody to do a laugh track session with a Laurel and Hardy film. It'd be fascinating to watch it afterwards and see how it played differently if it had an audience on it. See, see the, the experience of watching a Laurel and Hardy film by yourself with a laugh track But it did make me understand that some styles of comedy need that. The whole argument that all comedy is better without a laugh track didn't wash with me after that. Some it's intrusive, I was... Very happy that the BBC didn't have the laugh track on MASH. But also on the slapstick point, the interesting thing about Laurel and Hardy, I think we can probably lay this at the door of Leo McCary, who worked at the Hal Roach Studios. It's in a few of the Hal Roach films, uh, because Hal Roach had different lines running. There's Laurel and Hardy, there's Charlie Chase, who... Barely anybody remembers now.
0: Even he used to get the odd airing on BBC2 in late 1980s. Really? Yes. Yeah. I've seen a couple of his shows. I don't
1: remember that. Yeah. And of course there's Our Gang, things like that. There's a slowing down of style compared to other comedy troupes and certainly compared to the style of comedy that was popular in the first half of the 20s. So it, it is slapstick, but there tends to be sort of like one big hit for every 30 seconds I think the result is you actually get a bit more character. Not a great deal of characterisation. I think there's an idea now that characterisation is something that's separate from gags and separate from plot. A bit like we were complained about the Liverbirds. Somebody would look out the window and say, oh, My life's awful. No, just
0: to point out that that was the new Liverbirds 1996. Oh, yes. <laughs> they don't yeah, the all do new that Popeye the Popeye Liverbirds show. <laughs> <laughs> just what you were saying there about the Freeze Tucci's, it'd be interesting, G, to get your opinion on a Freeze Tucci's shot. Oh, because okay. that, is, that is just absolutely relentless. I mean, that is, I suppose you would say, the bits and pieces. In the Law and Hardy shorts where they were setting up the situation, remove all of them, just keep the bits where it's slapstick and then speed it up times 1.5, and then that's sort of Free Stooges. And also, the violence is much, much more overt. I mean, when I say violence, I mean obviously cartoon violence, but some, yeah, I mean, even then, some of the stuff in the Free Stooges of, say, the 1930s in maybe sort of 34 through to about 40 or so. Yeah, I mean, the stuff in there which I'm not entirely sure if it would actually air on Terrestrial in the daytime these days, as it did because it used to be on Channel 4 back in the day. Frequently it would be on Channel 4 in the 1980s but I'm, I think nowadays perhaps that kind of stuff would get a warning What's the word I'm looking for, Because You described it previously about why gold would cut Ronnie Barker putting the radio in the sink and turn the tap on.
1: Imitable behavior. That's the one. I think that's, that's the something one. the BBFC talks about when they give out certificates or have things cut.
0: Yes, yeah. So free stages shots are absolutely chock-full of that. Well, of course, as these ones were as well. In terms of internal logic, now, G, Ocho, we need to come up with a good slogan for this. We need to come up with some sort of tag for this if this doesn't already exist. Because I've got one here, but I'm not entirely happy with it. I've written it here as simply, stand there and take it. And by that, I mean, when, for example, they're having the water fight, Ollie will fill up his bucket of water. Stan will stand there and watch. He will stand there as Ollie tips bucket of water over Stan's head he will not try and sidestep or try and block it in any way and once that's done then it stands turn to retaliate and so on and so on and you see that kind of acceptance continued throughout the films you see that in Tip for Tat, for example between the boys and Charlie Hall at any point anybody can just get away from the table just stand up and move but they don't and that's just the rule that's just the way it is no, can we come off? If up you with... do
1: that, you've lost. I get the sense it is to do something so awful that the other person will try and stop you and then they have lost. <laughs> I don't know, it reminds me of message boards really. <laughs> <laughs> the trick is to get the other person to flounce. <laughs> that is part of the slowing down. When you have fewer gags per minute, it changes the nature of things, and even that is is a bit of a characterization thing. I didn't put this one in the pack, but the ultimate one of what they call the reciprocal destruction style is a silent called Big Business. And half of that is James Finlayson's reactions to the outrages Stan and Ollie are committing on his property. I made that sound a bit... <laughs> They're smashing up his house, basically. <laughs> But again it's part of the joke is what they're doing but part of it is just watching the reactions the 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 outrage reactions or the lack of outrage reactions. So in tit for tat Charlie Hall will be doing this with extreme venom. He's an angry unpleasant little man. You can't be on his side. Stan and Ollie seem to be a bit more passive and they're just curious to see where he's going to take this. But even he
0: himself will allow once the act has begun, he'll allow it to continue to its completion. So when he's sat in the box of eggs and they then begin to tip over the second box of eggs, at any point he can stand up or even just put his hands up over his head. But he it's doesn't. like he's trying to hold it in. Yeah, he's just going to wait. And just- Otherwise he's going to do something illegal. When you're saying about big business, for example, if you got into an argument outside of your house and somebody picked up a brick and clearly you can see that they are about to throw that brick through your window, there's only so many things you can do to stop it. You might decide that you're not going to put yourself in front of the window and put yourself in harm's way of you know the brick hurtling towards you. But at the very, very least, you're going to be screaming, do not throw that brick. And of course, Finn doesn't. He's just like okay, well, I think I can see where this is going, but uh, I'll wait until I've seen the conclusion to this before I express any opinion. (laughs) Then when what's obviously going to happen happens, then his reaction is immediately, okay, how can I respond to this? It's almost like a game of chess,
1: in a way. (laughs) I would definitely watch competition-level chess if there was more ties being cut off (laughs) and bricks hurled at chimneys. (laughs) <laughs> no, in, um, in the Marx Brothers film, Duck Soup, because there is a Laurel and Hardy film called Duck Soup, but in the Marx Brothers film, Duck Soup, there is a reciprocal destruction scene and it's meant to be kind of a metaphor for war. I will take this completely unacceptable hit as long as I can get my hit in afterwards.
2: It reminded me of sort of like a playground scene where someone hits someone and then the other person thinks, no, I'm going to wait and give a bigger slap. So I just thought, oh, it's just like children. And then, in fact, in the first episode... Ollie might have said that we're just acting like children. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly what's happening.
1: But again, that's part of the relationship. Stan is a child man. I think he's the only person Oliver can appear grown up around. There's different styles of double act. Most people tend to think in terms of straight man, funny man. But I think the most successful examples are what they call informed idiot and uninformed idiot. You're going back to message boards again except in this case there's an informed idiot <laughs> oliver knows just that little bit more about the world that he can sometimes pass for a normal person and a member of society and he gets to lord it over stan and we definitely see this in morcom and wise when they move to the bbc and when green and hill stop writing for them and this is the famous thing that Breban writes the first sketch where they're in bed together and Eric Morgan was really not sure about this. And he approaches Eddie Braben and it's like, do we absolutely have to be in bed together? And he said, it was good enough for Laurel and Hardy. And that was it. That was it. That's the question answered. If Laurel and Hardy did, it must be okay. Ignoring one fact, any time we see Laurel and Hardy in bed together, it's because they're destitute. It's the 1930s. They can only afford one bed. <laughs> they keep changing places in their relationship. Ernie knows a bit more about the arts and how to behave. And Eric is a bit more smart. So it can switch places which one is actually more in control. Ollie has this tendency, which I think you could probably apply this to Ernie as well, that
0: he wants to be seen to be correct, even if he's not in a position to be correct. So, for example, in Tit for Tat, when Stan says to Ollie, what is it about this water? It looks funny. doesn't taste right. Without any evidence to back this up ollie simply says oh that's the iron in it and because of ollie's delivery because of his confidence he can get away with
1: that and stan will accept it the look to camera the look to camera interests me the different backgrounds of laurel and hardy because stan laurel fred Cano, stage troupe i think he was charlie chaplin's understudy at some point by the time he's a movie comedian and it takes a while he's got this long history of being a stage comedian in the old vaudeville style so he has learned all the tricks all the things just interacting with an audience Oliver Hardy as far as I can tell his career as a live performer insofar as it even existed was as a singer certainly I don't think he did it to the same industrial scale that Stan Laurel's comedy performance would have happened His mother had a hotel, I think he might have sang to the guests, but I think he did do a few public performances. He becomes a comedian when he joins the Lubin Film Company, and he'd been a film projectionist. I'm not sure if he'd owned his own cinema, but he'd been a film projectionist and thought, I can probably do as good as those guys. This is a boom time for cinema in the 1910s. So there was a place in Florida he went to, and I think he learns to become a comic actor, not say comedian, a comic actor On the set, he's more cinematic from the off. Stan, even in the first few Laurel and Hardy films, you can see him unlearning certain habits. Just occasionally, I think he does it once in Help Mets, but he did occasionally have this bad habit of looking into camera and giggling as if that was going to make things funnier. Oliver is doing the look into camera, breaking the fourth wall, long before he's working with Stan. And it's just a very cinematic thing, because he's not looking into camera, isn't this funny? He's looking into the camera going, this is humiliating. I've lost my dignity here.
0: Well, sometimes he's also simply exasperated. And he's just, it's almost like he's sort of conveying, can you believe what Stan has either just done or said?
1: There are a couple of points about Oliver's look. One, it was actually used as a space for the laughs. People laugh at the gag and you then have Oliver look as necessary for them to calm down so you can get on to the next gag without it being drowned out apparently in some films to get this look just that little bit more convincing just that little bit testier Stan would make sure that that close up was the last thing they shot on the day <laughs> and would occasionally delay it slightly so that they're beginning to eat into Oliver's valuable golfing tie. <laughs> sometimes that look is not acting
2: That's
1: great. So off the top of my head, two sitcom characters, I think, owe a lot to Stan Laurel. Frank Spencer is a Laurel with no Hardy. He just keeps meeting an endless succession of Charlie Halls and James Finlayson's. And there's nobody to stand between him and them. And Dougal, Father Dougal Maguire in Father Ted.
0: Yes, I was reminded of Dougal on a couple of occasions as we watch these, because there are times when, I mean, I think this about Frank Spencer all the time, whenever I see him, and I also think this about Mr Bean as well, although Mr Bean has uh, somewhat of a more, I don't know if malicious is quite the right word, but sometimes he can be a little bit cruel, deliberately cruel towards other people. Like, for example, when he takes his girlfriend to the cinema and he's deliberately sort of trying to scare her, just for his own amusement. Well, as far as Father Dougal is concerned, sometimes I sort of think, yeah, I'm not entirely sure that he's somebody who should be out in the community. And I think <laughs> actually one, I think actually one point Father Ted says, you know, how did you actually become a priest? You win a competition or something like that. So, gee, were there any particular sitcom characters who either Stan or Ollie or even other players like May Bush or Charlie Hall reminded you of when you were watching these?
2: Um, like you said, Frank Spencer was the first one that came to my mind. But uh, to be honest, I was more reminded of Morecambe and Wise than anyone, really. But yeah, I can see where you're going with Dougal as well.
1: I remember one time see- seeing a-, a friend who was also in the sands of the desert, and it must have been the night after, a- I don't think it was the first time of Sean, no, it must have been the night after a Father Ted repeats, and we said, you, you remember that bit night where Dougal's playing air guitar, and it's time for bed, and he puts the air guitar in its air stand? <laughs> <laughs> that is so Stan! Yes.
0: It's not always a correct comparison. You quite often hear people talking about something being Laurel and Hardy-ish when they're talking about two people performing together and whatever it may be. But, I mean, gee, am I right in thinking that, for example, sometimes when you've got Gary and Ron together in Goodnight Sweetheart, Yeah. there are times when they remind me a little bit of some sort of Lauren Hardy plots. For example, the time where Ron could suddenly get back in time, having attempted all that time, then suddenly found himself there. And it was almost like the way that Ron was sort of behaving was sort of childlike, you know, just acting as if he was James yeah. Bond and his bowler hat and what have you, and there was Gary, you know, having to sort of think, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in some way responsible for him and I'm going to have to get him out of this situation. Yeah, he and he was making time.
2: it ten times worse for Gary, yeah. I can see that, definitely.
0: And it's something that does sort of crop up repeatedly, and I mean, you see it all the time, you see just characters pay a little homage to Lorne Hardy every now and then, just a little sort of movement or... Having the tie, of course, doing the ollie waving tie or whatever it may be. And and sometimes you even see it with the the, the hat, like Stan in the boat, you know, having the hat uh, lift off his head and so on. Just a little bit of business like that. You see them in so much work post Lone Hardy because they're so influential. Um,
1: Yeah, they loom so large that it's not a case a lot of the time that they necessarily invented these gags, these tropes, but they seem to just do them so well that there are certain things you can't do without thinking of them. And I even see it sometimes in Only Fools and Horses. I mean, the chandelier. Yeah. Which, before Del fell through the bar, that was the moment everybody pointed to as the ultimate Only Fools and Horses gag. And Okay,
0: as far as Del falling through the bar is concerned, that's perfect, Ollie, because he's just said to Trigger about, you know, playing nice and cool. And so he's setting himself up literally for the fall. His pomposity is about to be pricked. And that is absolutely Oliver Hardy.
1: Oliver's a bit more difficult for me to project onto other characters. Maybe Captain Mannering sometimes. But Oliver's slightly slipperier. We don't know exactly how stupid he is. Sometimes he's worldly. We know he's not as worldly as he thinks he is.
2: I think he's like the prototype, if you like, of someone who's trying to be better than themselves. And obviously that's what quite a lot of famous sitcom characters do, like Hyacinth Bucket and Margot Ledbetter and things like that.
1: It's interesting because these being American films, they're not quite the same class tensions. So it's almost like he's trying to better himself educationally. He's got these things that people never thought he would have. People never thought he would at least have his own fish business. A bit more Bob and Terry and the Likely Lads without the hairdressing <laughs> and the ascots and the, the more obvious bourgeois bits. It's simply the thing of like, I am a moderate success. It's partially a class thing, but it is partially just being the kid who grew up and every said, well, you don't, yeah, it's never going to amount to anything. Bob Ferris on his own house. Pfft. He's a nice lad, but come on. You can just imagine that being said and somehow he's got stand clinging to him another strange thing there's a lot of sitcoms which are about two or more people who are stuck together and generally it's family Steptoe and Son, Only Fools and Horses and much to the betterment of the original idea Sykes changing them to brother and sister from the original idea of husband and wife gives them a better reason to be trapped brother and sister who are arguing and kind of want to get away from each other is less bleak than a husband and wife who've clearly fallen out of love Stan and Oliver don't really need to hang out together. Particularly Oliver. I guess it, it actually gives a little lift to his character. It makes him just... Occasionally he could appear to just be a pompous bully. But it's like he's loyal. He's loyal to his friend. It also means that you can only take pathos so far with Laurent and Hardy. Some films are sadder than others. Oh, God, Below Zero. Oh. Oh, that hurts. But at the end of the day, it's always me and my pal. They have each other. You can never be <laughs> too bereft. Even well, it's it's a spoiler, but I won't say which film. There is one film where Oliver is killed, but they're still reunited, thanks to the miracle of reincarnation. <laughs> They'll always have each other, and it won't be quite as bad as Step Two and Son or Ollie Fools and Horses, where they're stuck to each other. At the end, they will always choose each other's company.
0: Yeah, that that does actually lighten things somewhat because, I mean, take helpmates as an example. Ollie comes to Stan for his help because he needs to try and tidy that house before his wife comes back. And Stan's just there. Yeah, okay. He comes over. He didn't have to. He's not under any obligation to, but he does. And that's just the way it is. And there's a moment at the end of saps at Sea, which is Lone Hardy's last Hal Roach film, and i think it's probably my favourite of all the features. At the end of that where they're going to get reward from the police for having caught this wanted criminal and Ollie is simultaneously going to claim the reward and not split it 50-50 with Stan and exactly the same time he says to Stan, I'll take care of you and you know that he will so Ollie can be simultaneously nice and nasty and You don't actually think of him as being like an out-and-out villain. Just to go back to what you were saying a minute ago about Bob and Terry, the opening of Helpmates, Ollie addressing himself in the mirror. And there's one line in there where he says, at one point I had high hopes for you, but those hopes have gone. And going back to this idea of wanting to sort of better himself, whereas Stan, instead of Terry being sort of stubbornly stuck in his class mindset Stan is just happy with the world around him and he doesn't really tend to think in terms of betterment or or even he doesn't necessarily think about tomorrow he's just happy in the moment and I suspect again that's probably something that will appeal to Ollie because Ollie's always sort of so tightly wound up and constantly worrying about things.
1: So instead of class it's being a grown up Oliver is a married man, with a house, with ambitions. You can pretty much put them at any level of society, which I don't think you can do with with Charlie Chaplin or Harold Lloyd. Buster Keaton's a bit more versatile, but Charlie Chaplin has to be at the bottom. Harold Lloyd has to be middle class at least, and we do see him a millionaire at least one point. But Laurel and Hardy, there can be tramps, or they could, they could be the president and vice president. God knows how they got there. <laughs> But you can pretty much... Just as long as they're Peter Principled above the level of their ability. I think the highest we ever see them is Oliver is a prospective mayoral candidate.
0: Well, there was a silent one, isn't there? Where Ollie is a, a sort of a rich playboy and Stan is his butler.
1: That's just Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy in the same film. Let's not get bogged down in the history because G will never get a word in x <laughs> <Edward. laughs> Well,
0: I wanted to ask yourself, G, about what aspects of the six films that we watched because let's just go through them toad in the hole we began with county hospital helpmates and then a sort of double bill the only time that we have sequential storylines them are hills followed by tit for tat and then we finished with the music box so did you actually have a preference did you have a favorite one out of the six
1: i
2: think the last one the music box just because it was that kind of cliched sort of picking up a piano and moving it and obviously You see that a lot in sitcoms today and at first when I was watching it, I had my, oh, this is like such and such, but then I was thinking, hang on a minute, this is being made way before they were and obviously that's the origins of it. And I think it was that episode that I started to open my mind up and actually think, oh, hang on a minute, this is where aspects of the sitcom might have originated.
1: They are as far away from something like The Good Life as we are from The Good Life. I mentioned The Good Life because... There's a good life gag that reminds me of a Laurel and Hardy thing, which is when Margot is collecting, is it the peas? Beans, yeah. The beans, yeah, she's collecting one at a time. (laughs) And it's just, it's that very Laurel and Hardy thing that there is a job to be done and it's not going to be done properly. It's going to be done without any sort of thought to the big picture. Do the job the way you can just see it in front of you without actually any larger thought. Let's talk about filth. (laughs) Because there isn't much in Laurel and Hardy, but there is some. In the middle of their golden age is when the motion picture code gets properly enforced. It's introduced in 1930, but they don't really start pushing it until 1934. There's just a few things that I think they're nudging at the boundary of 1930s mainstream American taste. County Hospital, Stan puts the egg... Yes. And it rolls off, and you see the water. Yeah, th- <laughs> <in the air. laughs> and you're not supposed to think the water jug is there. <laughs> and if they hadn't picked up that water jug, I think that would have got cut. There's one I'm not sure about in Tip for Tat when Oliver comes downstairs and says, "I've never been in a position like that before." <laughs> I'm really not sure if that joke is there or if it's a mirage caused by 21st century filth.
2: That's what I put. It because down if though.
1: anybody had spotted that. Had it been three years earlier, I think I would have... Yeah, that's probably there. But it's about 1934, 35, this gets released. So it's right at the point when the clampdown starts. If you look much earlier, before the code is really getting enforced, is it Men of War? Yes, of. yes. Is well, that, I think that's made in 1929. So it's actually before the things... And there's a whole little sequence where a girl loses her gloves and somebody is bicycling some laundry past an item falls off and Stan and Ollie find a pair of knickers in the park and they think this girl has somehow lost her knickers and so they have this conversation at Cross Purposes she thinks they've got her gloves and they're <laughs> slightly surprised at how blase she's being about the fact that she's it's a good job, it's warm weather oh, they are so easy to pull on and off <laughs> So, tit for tat, it's not so much that, well, that kind of humour did not exist. It's just kind of like, oh 1934, you're pushing it there. This is not filth,
0: but this is again something which, rather than this being something that you could get away with now, I'm sort of thinking that you probably wouldn't. I'm not quite sure why, though. County Hospital, when in the ensuing chaos, the nurses put the syringe with the sedative on the chair, and then Stan sits on it. Now, first of all, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's just 2014 eyes, but I suspect that anything involving like a syringe or anything just probably wouldn't happen these days. But also blasey attitude of the nurses. It's like, oh, we got a dose of that. He'll be out for a month. I don't even tell him. they let him leave the damn hospital and get behind the wheel. <laughs> that is clearly a lawsuit waiting to happen. That's what all those damn adverts during daytime TV were invented for, surely. Were there any bits and pieces G, that you saw in these half dozen where you thought, either... You were surprised to see this in a 1930s film or you thought, oh, you wouldn't get away with that nowadays?
2: When we're talking about that joke in Tit for Tat, that was the one thing that I really picked out and thought, oh, hang on a minute, is that just me being a sick-minded youth of today? (laughs) <laughs> but yeah no there wasn't really anything that i thought shouldn't have been there i don't
1: think
0: now when you say youth of today now be honest because we're, we're all expressing our opinions here even if this is going to be blasphemous uh, for people in the sons of the desert who might hear this but how did you actually see these films did you look at these and think that they were not just dated in terms of being black and white and so on but did you think that they weren't in 2014 did they appeal to you are you inclined to carry on watching lauren hardy films having seen the slow selection
2: i really really wanted to enjoy them and to some extent i did but i just thought they were kind of very labored and it was just slapstick and for me there wasn't a plot and it wasn't character driven which i think most of today's television is which is obviously what i'm used to so i guess it's just the fact that i'm not used to that sort of thing but i did like the whole sort of old-fashioned feel to it and the silent movie style and the incidental music but I don't know I think just because it was slapstick and there wasn't a lot of plot it just made it very laboured and it did take me probably about 40 minutes to watch the 20 minute episode because I just had to keep pausing it for a bit and doing something else for five minutes.
0: It sounds like you were watching an American network television in that case.
2: (laughs) Yeah no I would maybe go and watch another few
1: Might be a good idea for you to watch one of their features. I was just thinking that, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and there's really two knockout features. Sons of the Desert and Way Out West. Okay, I think there's one joke that really hasn't stood the test of time because I only understand it because my dad explained a similar joke to me and I didn't entirely understand it then. I have had to go on to Wikipedia (laughs) (laughs) to understand it now. And that is a certain powder called alum. I looked it up earlier on today. Yes, I looked it up and I thought, okay, what is it about alum that would make your teeth stick together? I remember seeing it in a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Occasionally, you just occasionally see it in other cartoons. It was a common thing. There was this powder people kept around and it was used as a coagulant and astringent. And the idea was he kept some around if you cut yourself shaving. I don't know if alum really worked. Somehow people got this idea that it shrinks things, (laughs) it shrinks holes and that it... If you put it in your mouth, it would do to your mouth what it did to a shaving cut and make it go small.
0: But it's also suitable for liberally applying to marshmallows. (laughs) And Again, cavalier actions. I do like the way that Charlie Hall just sort of thinks, right... Chances are that, the, that those two next door are going to pinch some more of my marshmallows over the course of the day, so I'll fix them
1: without really giving any thought to any other customers who may come yes, to the Because yeah. <laughs> the other thing is Prohibition. These films aren't the most Prohibition shadowed, but it does give a little extra sting because I think, despite the fact that Bootleg Liquor is the basis of them the hills. I was released in 34, I don't know when it was made, and of course prohibitions repealed in 33. There would still be such a thing as people making illegal alcohol. But it means something like help, mates. He's had a wild party. He's got that ice pack on top of his head, and that just tells you. He's been drinking alcohol, which means he's been breaking the law. Yeah, it's that, that possibly
0: explains why he is so appalled with his own actions at the beginning of the film. And also, perhaps, there might be a sort of a, a nod there to the censor as if to say you can't just have him wake up from a wild party and and have a sore head. That He's got to be seen to feel guilt over his actions.
2: Yeah, that makes sense actually.
0: And so in Them, Their Hills and Tit for Tat I can't think of any other examples of a storyline continuing into another film. I'm pretty sure that's
1: the only instance. We played this game of structuring like a sitcom but the thing to remember is these things i think were released every other month so we watch them the wrong way you're not supposed to chain them you're not even seeing them every week you might see a comic shot more than once a week because 1930s film going was different i think it was you might go to the cinema a couple of times a week not thinking anything of it but when i'm looking at the release schedule there tends to be six films a year Somewhere along those lines So the, there is more repetition Because by the time you've got Your first film of 1934 out People have probably forgotten Some of the gags Of the first film of 1933 And you can reuse Some of the situations I think there was actually A film release between Them That Hells and Tit for Tat So it's very odd for them Not just to say Remember the last one of these But remember the one before last You were talking in terms of What four months ago
2: I did like that it continued I thought it kind of gave it A bit more depth And a bit more meat on the bones which is what I think the whole thing was lacking, but I guess that's 21st century head that I've got on.
1: And the thing I wanted to bring in about sitcom is because when sitcom is learning what it is and learning how to be itself, Hancock's Half Hour is a show about a man, again, whose situation changes from week to week, and something that happens at the end of one will not have any binding effect on the next show. So Hancock's Half Hour is still made something like... The short films were of the 1930s that it's like well no we just we know what his character is and we know what gags will happen but the fact that it was at public school one week and yet the following week has clearly grown up in the same grubby little street all his life doesn't have you know no it's just reset button every week now
0: this is not such an unusual thing when it comes to sitcom because I'm thinking of most sitcoms, I think probably most sitcoms that we've talked about, and I suppose okay, let's say a typical BBC six-part 30-minute sitcom. The majority of them, probably you wouldn't have a continuous series of storylines all running through them, unless it's actually built that way, unless it's supposed to be a serial. But once for example, say, Dad's Army. Once you've established in episode one, who they all are and what they're doing there, then the rest of the episodes from that point onwards you can pretty much see them in any order you like. And so it doesn't matter if you missed week two because obviously Program Planner doesn't want somebody saying, oh I missed week two therefore that's the rest of the series done for me. You know, So you want to have it in such a way that you can sort of come into it and say, okay well I saw it a couple of weeks ago, I'll try another episode of it. Now I'm thinking gee of something like say The Good Life, for example, where you've got Episode 1 has to be the setup. It couldn't be any other way. But from the beginning of Episode 2, okay, we've established the setup now. And it is going to take time for the premise to play out, but... I mean, Even if you didn't see episode 1 at all, you're still going to be able to come in at episode 2 and understand what's going on. And there are some shows that we've looked at recently, Ocho, where we've commented on how quickly they've established the premise. Sometimes if it's an ITV show, they might establish the entire premise in part 1. And then part 2 is all about letting a particular situation, unique to that one episode, play out. So... I guess, yeah, with anything else, it just depends on the type of show that it is, but, I mean, even with things like, even the modern-day things, like I've been watching Veep recently, HBO series, and you do have storylines running through that, but nothing that's going to completely throw you, so if you come in at episode 6, you haven't got a clue who anybody is or what they're doing or whatever, it's easily conveyed
1: within the first couple of minutes who everybody is. So now, you can pretty much guarantee that any show that's made can be watched by anybody at any time they like. They can stream it, they can iPlayer it, they might even have something to record it, like the olden days. So you can have a thread going through, you can have a story arc. So now pretty much any show can have a story arc before streaming, before recording. There are serials in the 60s, 70s and 80s, but they require more commitment. So it's in the interest of a lot of different kinds of show just to sort of say, right, are you available this week? You can watch this week. Did you miss us last week? Doesn't matter. It's not that the serial's unknown. Right now, for some reason, the only example I can think of is from the 60s, but the Foresight saga. But the idea of of making a sitcom that requires any kind of through line, any big investment from the audience, that's pushing it. And when we're getting back to Laurel and Hardy 80 years ago, there is no guarantee that they saw the film before last. So it's not really in their interest to keep too much... It's like, right, you only see us six times a year and you don't necessarily go and see the films that our shorts are bundled with, so you might only see us three times a year. Maybe you didn't see us last year at all. So, right, I'm stupid, he's stupider. That's all you have to remember from film to film because if you get too invested, you might miss out because nobody's going to the cinema just to see Laurel and Hardy. They're just bundled with a feature film.
2: I think, like you were saying, especially going back to sitcom, it's quite important because, obviously, especially British sitcom, there's a studio audience there. So if they're watching it live and they've not seen like last week's episode where there's a character in, it shouldn't matter because obviously they're coming back, they can enjoy it and obviously they're watching it for the first time live. Because I went to see Still Open All Hours being filmed on Friday and there was a character in that that reoccurred and was introduced two, three episodes before. And the warm-up guy says, this character's been in before, but it shouldn't matter because nothing... It's really happened and you still understood who it was and the relationship to Granville and yeah, it was fine.
0: To this day, in sort of modern lexicon, whenever anybody wants to describe two people acting in any kind of moderately foolish way, they'll say, Oh, Lauren Hardy. You you hear all the time, you hear it about politicians and you hear it about sports people, all sorts of people. Just Am I right, Ocho, in thinking that in the States the same would apply for free people to the free stooges?
1: Yes. Yeah, because there was that attempt to make a new Three Stooges film, which was moderately successful. I've been having to explain to my nephew that the Three Stooges is not a new film with a new idea in it.
0: There was an attempt to resurrect Lone Hardy. Oh, in 1999, and all I remember about it is that it had one of the guys out of that pish sitcom Perfect Strangers in it. I think he was playing Stan Laurel. And I'm going to come up with some ridiculous theory as to why that wasn't successful and perhaps... The new Free Stooges film was. And that is because the Free Stooges did change personnel over time. So you had, for example, Curly retired, Shemp came in, and you had Curly Joe for a while. I think perhaps there's a little bit more acceptance of other people in those roles, whereas Laurel and Hardy are Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, and they don't change. And also because their career was actually, in terms of Laurel and Hardy, the double line, it's actually a relatively, perhaps by today's standards, a relatively brief run i mean you're only really talking about sort of what 1928 1929 through to about 1945 so not including the earlier silence and not including things like utopia or anything like that you never really saw them age a great deal on screen so the idea that other people suddenly come and start playing those roles that doesn't work for me and there's also
1: the difference just in the way people feel about them Gee, don't feel bad. Don't feel like we've been piling on you today because you didn't immediately like them. It's okay. Because you have to be friends with them. Spike Milligan said of of Laurel and Hardy, he said, As soon as they came on screen, I knew they were my friends. I know he's saying it was an instantaneous thing, but I think you have to kind of breathe them in a bit. And so people laugh at the Three Stooges, and they like and admire Chaplin and Keaton and Harold Lloyd and the Marx Brothers. But people love Laurel and Hardy. It's how I've sometimes explained Markham and Wise to Americans. So saying, you've got to understand these guys are second to Laurel and Hardy. People feel about them in those terms. Introducing my wife to Markham and Wise was a couple of years before my wife said, I think I finally understand Markham and Wise.
0: I'm sure you've spotted, G, that Markham and Wise shows, of course, absolutely chock full of references to Lauren Hardy. Yeah. Sometimes we'll there and sometimes it'll be something like, for example, Ernie will make a suggestion and say, you know, that was a good idea, wasn't it? And Eric will turn around and says, It certainly was, Ollie. Is there anything else anybody wants to throw in to the mix before we talk a little bit about the music box at the end?
1: I like the fact that we spent something like a minute watching a man eating an egg. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. But that's what I mean about the I know you said there wasn't characterization, but that is characterization. The way he eats the egg, the way, the look in his eyes. <laughs> There's no backstory to Laurel and Hardy. But we know something about how their minds work, because there is enough time for Stan to eat an egg. It is something you didn't get in some of the comedy before that. There were slots i saw I saw 1915 comedy by somebody called John Bunny. It was interesting how sitcomish that was. But in general, there was a taste for frenetic slapstick with lots of gags. And this is the beginning, in Laurel and Hardy, of slapstick having to share some time, getting to know the people who are falling over and being hit.
0: Right, well, let us conclude with the music box. So, G, I think you said that that was your... Favourite one out of the half dozen. Yeah, it was.
2: I also thought it was quite interesting because I was watching a documentary on Saturday about 1970s telly and it was kind of focusing on how sort of women weren't, well, not molested, but they were kind of seen as sexual objects. It was okay to touch them and just almost molest them, if you like. And obviously in this one, I can't remember who kicks the lady, but one of them kicks the lady and then the police obviously get involved and it's kind of taken seriously. It's like this shouldn't be done. So I thought that was quite interesting. Obviously, that was decades before the 70s.
1: And also, it's the US. Slightly more Puritan strand, even then, running through the culture.
2: I thought that was interesting. because obviously, there's a whole slapstick of her being kicked. And because it's meant to be slapstick, I thought, oh, it's just meant to be funny and that's the end of it. But it wasn't. And I thought that was quite a nice route to take it down.
0: Well, the thing is that it's Stan who kicks the lady after she's come down the stairs and they're trying to take the piano up and what have you. And I don't think that Ollie could have got away with that. I think that the reason that it's Stan is because we've now sort of established in their previous films, because it's a fairly early one, 1931 but we've sort of established by this point that Stan doesn't have any kind of maliciousness about him so it's just a reaction on his part
1: It's more of his big kid Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly, yeah, and he doesn't understand that that it's not acceptable to do that. So there was no kind of malice, there's no kind of intent on his part. I have made an outstanding, astonishing discovery, and I have to credit Wikipedia for this, because I actually looked up just now the precise location of the steps. Now, in the film, they are 1127 Walnut Avenue. However, the actual precise location of the steps in the music box is the Silver Lake District of Los Angeles near the Lauren Hardy Park. And they are a public staircase which connects Vendome Street with Descanso Drive and are located at 923 to 925 Vendome Street Street near the intersection of del monte street now ocho have you visited the steps
1: no i haven't i think they've put buildings either side i don't think they look the same anymore from what i've heard
0: well the wikipedia page for the music box does have some photographs from 2009 2010 and there is actually a sign at the top of the hill which says music box steps but here's the astonishing discovery i've just made please supply own piano I presume that everybody was aware of this, but I was this close to actually blurting out what I've now discovered to be a falsehood. I was about to say, and you can also see those steps, in the free Stooges Short and in Every stake where they're delivering the big ice boxes. And now I've discovered actually that it's not the same staircase. And in actual fact, those stairs are approximately two miles northeast, located at 2212 Edendale Place in Silver Lake. So there you have it. I'd always thought I was exactly the same staircase in the two films.
1: One quick thing to mention, it being Thanksgiving, but to kind of excuse our normal breaking out. We haven't really mentioned just how transatlantic these films are. Really, of, of the actors we've mentioned, we've only mentioned one American, Oliver Hardy. Because Stan Laurel from was from Lancashire, but now his birthplace is in Cumbria. They moved the boundary. They didn't move the birthplace. That would be I, I, certainly, I, certainly not up some steps. I was at the same school as Stan Laurel. Explains so much. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie Hall, who was the peevish little man in, in Them, Their hills and Tit for Tat. And was that him playing the postman in the music Yes, yes, yes. it was. From Birmingham. Oh really? May Bush, who played his wife, I was an Australian. And had we seen any um, where was James Finlayson from? Don't get I assume mm, that they teach it to you in schools.
0: Get over to the a block computer. I'm ninety nine percent certain, but I thought I would just check to be absolutely sure, he says, covering his own ignorance. He was from Larbert, which is in Stirlingshire.
1: Okay. So gee, I do recommend you stick with stick with this era of comedy. Keep revisiting it. Because there are things you will see that will have echoes in things you really do like, and don't worry if you don't like Harry Langdon okay. or Wheeler and Woolsey. Right, Wheeler and Woolsey are interesting because I can see bits of them in Markham and Wise, and I've never seen any of them in anybody else.
2: Okay,
1: uh, Harry Langdon's thing is was a big influence on Stan Laurel, but his talkies are strange.
0: Of course, that's something else that we never even really touched on. We've mentioned it in passing, but we haven't actually touched on the significance of it. Lauren Hardy came from the silence and made the transition to the talkies, which is something that today we can't really get our head around properly. I mean, because it's not the same saying that somebody came from the black and white era and then made it through into colour. It's not the same thing at all. And Chaplin really didn't. Some of Chaplin's work, particularly The Great Dictator, is a very good film, but he didn't have a successful talkie's career in the same way that Lauren Hardy did. And around 1929, I mean, the name of Lauren Hardy's first talkie is Unaccustomed As We Are. In 1929, it's perfectly debatable as, as who is going to make that transition successfully because not everybody did.
1: I think Lauren Hardy had an advantage. I think the reason that Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd don't continue to be huge stars... Though they were more successful than we think. I think the the films that Buster Keaton made and sort of quasi double acts with Jimmy Durante made more money than some of his silence. But the problem with them is by 1929, people are used to them. They're no longer the new thing. Harold Lloyd definitely, I think, his big problem was going out of fashion. He's too full of the 1920s spirit. Whereas Laurel and Hardy, they'd only been together two years. I suppose there was that possibility that people might have said, well, they don't sound anything like I imagine. And we can only presume that people just took to them and that their voices did match. I can't imagine not knowing what Laurel and Hardy sounded like. I know what
0: you mean, because it's. I suspect that all of us who have seen Laurel and Hardy films, probably we've started seeing the better known ones. And then we've actually perhaps seen, like, a silent one later on. But, I mean, I don't know that anybody, apart from somebody who was there at the time, would have seen the and Hardy films in a linear fashion. So it is hard to get your head round. But one other thing that's worth pointing out as well, because you might sort of think, okay, well, so what if Chaplin didn't speak? Or so what if Buster Keaton didn't speak? I mean, that was just their thing. I mean, why? Surely there's enough cinema screen time for all and why couldn't they just continue to do their thing? And if their thing was silent comedy then so be it. Well, gee, you'll have noticed that in some of the later Mark and Wise shows, they conclude with photographs of the guest stars as children. And they Didn't did they don't
1: that kinda look weird.
0: <laughs> well, we can debate that in a future show. But The point was, they were doing that around about 75, 76. They actually proposed doing that five years earlier. And the chap at the BBC who was in charge of Light Entertainment, a guy by the name of Tom Sloan, overruled them and said, no, we can't have black and white photographs because they'd only just switched to colour television UK wide the year before. And now black and white was a dirty expression. And. I don't imagine that it, it's not too much of a ridiculous suggestion to say that if cinemas were in the process of transitioning to sound films, then if you come along and say, well, we've got Buster Keaton, then surely the reaction you're going to get at that point is, does he speak? Because well, Keaton
1: was eager to go to talkies as soon as he could and was held back because he'd signed to MGM, which was where a lot of great comedians went to die. So he's signing to MGM, did no favours to Buster Keaton or Our Gang or the Marx Brothers. And indeed, Laurel and Hardy did a film for MGM, not just distributed by MGM, but made for MGM. And that's pretty dreadful.
0: I appreciate, G, you watching these films for us today, because I think that there is a possibility that Ocho and I could just sort of fall into the trap otherwise of looking at these with rose-tinted glasses. Because we grew up with these films on television all the time. And it's nice to have somebody else's input and somebody else's opinion looking at these things for the first time in 2014. And as Ocho said before, I think it'd be worth having a look at some of the later films, particularly the later longer features a, a couple of our titles i think worth having a look at are relations which does get confusing as far as the plot is concerned <laughs> because it's basically laurel and hardy and their doubles and there are points towards the end of the film where it is actually really difficult to keep track of who's who because they're identically dressed but another one also is blockheads as well okay and one thing you you sort of spot in the longer film's sometimes, Law & Hardy do sometimes reuse some material that they may have used, say, sort of 10 years previously. And again, not a similarity with Mark on wise And again, the reason being that this is not the videotape age. So if you've done something 10 years previously, the audience hasn't then seen that repeated at infinitum over the course of the next decade. So you can recycle or restage a scene. And some of the feature films have got maybe like a sort of opening 20 minute piece which is pretty much a two wheeler and then the rest of the film is actually the storyline and the whole thing sort of comes up to an hour in length because I'm right in thinking Ocho that the features needed to be a certain length to qualify as a feature.
1: Yeah well the first feature was meant to be a short and they just kept going wasn't that the situation with Pardinoz. Oh, I know that they, happened no. to Harold Lloyd his first feature was just a short and they could, it's like what, what bit do we edit out? It's all good, actually.
0: I was actually well, I was thinking about the, the minimum length requirement for the films to class them as a feature. And what I was thinking of there was, I remember seeing Graham McCann interviewed about Frankie Howard and how Frankie Howard's first film was underrunning. And so they had to invent basically a little bit of business for him to do. A nice little sort of five-minute... Seen just himself in a call box, just to get it to the required length. And I wonder if perhaps some of the Law and hardy films and all the films of that era, perhaps they've got that sort of twenty minute or so piece tagged on to the front of it, so that I think also in- you can
1: break that off and sell it as a short if necessary. Well, talking about first features again, Buster Keaton's first feature, or which I think is called Three Ages, and I might be wrong, was made in such a fashion so that it could be cut up into three two-reelers, just in case people weren't going for the feature film idea.
0: And of course, this would not have been in the long-term view of anybody who was making the films at the time, but of course, a lot of these films were then sort of chopped up and repackaged for television. And that's why whenever you say to anybody of a particular age, Harold Lloyd, then (laughs) <laughs> Even if you don't want to, you have a voice in your head singing Hooray for Harold Lloyd because a company called Time Life repackaged his films in the 1970s and gave them more jaunty little intros. Yeah, but
1: you try getting hold of those versions now. Well, yeah, that's it. You couldn't get away from them. You couldn't, you couldn't avoid gone.
0: them back in the day a, and a now. There
1: should be a DVD, at least one of them. I'll just put out a download of the theme tune. <laughs> well, a quick tangent
0: before we wrap up because I know, true, that you have got the turkey in the oven as we speak and you are about to rush off to your Thanksgiving dinner.
1: No, I thought I'd ring Peter Hut.
0: okay. But we do have a bit of an exclusive on our hands. Now, Gee, you mentioned earlier on that you had been to a recording of Still Open All Hours.
2: I had indeed, yes.
0: So I've got to ask... How was it? Because so far, we've only seen, of course, the pilot episode that went out last Christmas.
2: It was actually good. I was a bit worried because I do like Roy Clark's material, but it's never, ever gotten me laughing out loud. And, you know, you titter a bit, but I was sat there worried. and I thought, oh, my God, I'm not going to be laughing. I'm just going to be sat here watching this. But it was, it was very promising. And I think it was very good. The storylines was all right. It was your generic sort of open all hoursy sort of plot but it was good I think it's got potential
0: and did you spot any change in the characterisation from the pilot to the series because I did sort of find myself at points in that first episode last Christmas I found myself sort of thinking it's a bit odd that Granville has embraced Arkwright's ways so much because there was never any point in the original open all hours where Granville was sort of thinking, yeah, okay, I sort of admire Arkwright in that respect. You know, he sometimes, he will give him grudging respect on occasion, but generally speaking, he's disapproving of
2: There was kind of aspects of Arkwright to it. I mean, the one that I saw, he had a lot of stock, and he had to obviously try and get rid of it, and he was kind of using people to get rid of it. So that is sort of Arkwright, really. But you could see Granville from the original series in it as well, so I think they've tried to, as he's got older turn him slightly into arc right
0: are there any particular shows or sitcoms or anything else that you are planning on seeing this side of christmas because i think that we've got for example we've got mrs brown's boys again and we've got a two-part miranda to finish off the series and all bits and pieces
2: i'm looking forward to miranda i'm a huge fan of miranda and slightly sad that that's going to end but it's probably the right time the sitcom to draw to a close,
0: really. I know, sure. We've already established you're watching Charlie Brown.
1: Uh, I think I'll watch Citizen Smith because I did actually buy all four series after we did that show. It's rare for me to be so impressed by something I've done for Sitcom Club that I've then rushed out and bought it all. I mean, it was cheap.
0: At what point are we going to mention that we've watched something else oh! for Disc set?
1: Oh, 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 oh! We'll
0: be talking about that in I think later you said that year. was the
1: worst thing we'd watched. Yes, yes, I did. Stay tuned for our Christmas special because that is this thing that Mooncat said was the worst thing we had watched. And we've watched Lots of Luck, so we know what we're talking about.
0: We've watched multiple episodes of Nearest and Dearest.
1: Nearest and Dearest is all right. In
0: comparison to this, people don't know what we're talking no, about. No, Nearest yet. and we're Dearest gonna, gonna... works
1: on its own terms. It may not be high art, but it works on its own terms. I hope here he is again. Game of Thrones. <laughs> anyway, that's all to come because,
0: like you say, that's our Christmas special, and we'll reveal more about that as the uh, the weeks progress. But in the meantime, G, thank you very much indeed for joining us today.
2: Not at all. Thank you very much for inviting me to watch something that I wouldn't normally watch.
0: And could you just mention again the details of your sitcom blog?
2: Yes, it's Sitcom Lovers Corner at WordPress, I think. If you find me on Twitter, I'm at GsWorld with a Z234. There's a link to it there.
0: Smashing. And next week, Ocho, we will discuss City Light, will we We've not? We've watched it all, we're
1: ready, and it's not
0: Thanksgiving. We will let Ocho go and enjoy his turkey, and I think that you're about to watch all the Thanksgiving episodes of Roseanne, back to back. <laughs> I recommend probably you skip the You're going to watch all so the Thanksgiving
1: one. episodes of Nearest and Dearest. Shouldn't take long.
0: <laughs> and in the meantime, we will be with you again next week talking City Lights, guaranteed, or your money back on the Sitcom Club.